Oh, good morning and welcome to Bachelor Creek. We're so glad that you have joined us. For those of you who are joining us online, those of you who are here in person, uh, welcome. If you have your Bibles, open them to Colossians chapter 6. Colossians, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 is where we'll be in, uh, in just a little bit. But as you're turning there, I, I want to I share with you that sometimes taking a closer look makes all the difference, right? Just ask Mahmoud Sarhan. He was a student in Egypt. On a visit to the Cairo International Garden Municipal Park, he walked by what he thought was a zebra enclosure. But upon closer inspection, he began to have some doubts. Now, you've heard of a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? How about a donkey in zebra's clothing? Mahmoud posted a picture of what he saw on Facebook, and it appears to support his assertion that those aren't zebras, but those are nothing more than donkeys with black stripes painted on them. He noticed a a smudge mark around their mouth and ear, and that was enough to convince him these were not the real thing. The photo eventually went viral, and it prompted a variety of people to weigh in on the authenticity of the zebras, or the lack thereof. A local news team even contacted a veterinarian who claimed that zebra snouts are usually black and their stripes are more consistent and more uniform compared to the striping with the animal in the photo. The vet also pointed out that the unusual black smudging and marking around the animal's face was not indicative of a zebra. However, during a radio interview, the zoo's director insisted that the zebras were in fact the real thing. Though donkeys and zebras are similar in physical form, they are distinctly different species. So what's the animal in the picture? I'll let you be the judge. Or how about this one? A few years earlier, visitors to a zoo in China got a rude surprise when the lion started barking. It turns out the animal in the African, and lion, the African lion enclosure was no lion, but rather a Tibetan mastiff a large, hairy breed of dog, which, for what it's worth, let's be honest, it more closely resembles the king of the jungle than it does most of the domestic dogs that we're used to. Apparently, officials in the Luhi City Zoo in central Henan province hoped that no one would notice when they decided to make the switch and send the enclosure's regular resident, an African lion, away to a breeding center. One Chinese family, the Liu family, they took their young son to the zoo. Mrs. Liu was teaching her son the different noises that that various animals make, and when they got to the the animal, to the lion enclosure, he told his mom that the lion sounds like a dog. Well, Mrs. Liu told a Beijing newspaper, the zoo is absolutely trying to cheat us. They're trying to disguise dogs as lions. Get this. The dog-for-cat swap wasn't the only attempt to pull the wool over the eyes of zoo guests. There was a domestic dog housed in the wolf pen, and there was a white fox found prancing around in the leopard exhibit. What in the world is going on? Now, I know you're probably thinking, I I would never do that. Like, I'm not Albert Einstein, but, but I know the difference between a dog and a lion. Yet Christians every day are tempted by misleading and deceptive schemes. Be honest, how how many of you have ever been sucked into a Facebook post because it sounded compelling, 
or because they were saying, well, you already wanted to believe in the first place, and so you just, you just ate it, hook, line, and sinker. How many times have you ever watched a TV show and they were displaying this product, you know, kind of one of those infomercials as seen on TV, and, and they're showing you this thing, and it, they're, ta- they're showing you how it, how it chops things up, and you're like, yeah, well, it's probably too good to be true. And then, oh, it dices too, and it blends, and, and they show it some more, and you're like, wow, that, that cuts really good, and wow, you, you can get two for the price of one. But wait, there's more. If, if you buy now, you'll get three for the price of one, and you, you don't see the little fine print that says, yeah, shipping and handling is going to be $44. If we're not aware, if we're not vigilant, if we're not paying attention, it's easy to be deceived. In Colossians 2, Paul warns the Colossian Christians to not be deceived. And he does so in five ways. Hopefully your Bibles are open to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The first and most important way we avoid being deceived is you must root yourself. Root yourself. Verse 6 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, received, you receive a gift you earn a wage. Christ is given to us as a gift. It's not based on our merit. It's not based on our effort. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What we have earned because of our sin is spiritual death, but the verse continues, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is given to us as a gift. We receive him. The verse goes on, continue to live your lives in him. Now that phrase, in him or in Christ, is a very important phrase throughout the book of Colossians. In fact, in Paul's writings, this is a very distinctive phrase, in him, in Christ. It's used more than 70 times in Paul's letters. In the short four chapters of Colossians, that phrase is used 19 times. It's an expression for the new life that is made available through Jesus Christ. 
It's a description of our identity. We are in Christ. We belong to him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Do you see the word picture painted here? Rooted, built, strengthened, or established? That word rooted provides a rich visual, doesn't it? You think of of trees with, with deep roots. In South Africa, a wild fig tree was measured to have roots 400 feet deep. Deep roots are important for survival. I was reading this week about what makes a tree's cause to be uprooted and fall over. Dr. Kevin Smith, who's a plant physiologist with the United States Department of Agriculture Forest Service, he says that trees in urban areas are more susceptible to topple over in a storm. The reason, he says, is because the roots of trees can extend to two to two and a half times the radius of their branches. And so in in urban areas, this kind of of extensive development is not able to happen. The, The problem lies with trees that have been developed and built up around when that happens, the, the roots of, of these trees are often cut down, they're, they're torn, they're, they're, they're destroyed in the process. He says other risk factors include large trees growing in shallow soil or in rocky places. In other words, the strongest trees have the deepest roots. And if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, this should come as no surprise to you because Jesus reinforced this theme throughout the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus gives a parable of a wise builder and a foolish builder. The wise builder builds his house upon the rock. It's got a firm foundation. The foolish builder builds his house upon the sand. He says there's a storm that comes. The storm hits both houses, but when the wind blew and the rain fell on the, on the house built on the rock, it stood firm. It was able to with, withstand and weather the storm. But when the rain fell and the wind blew on the house that was built on sand, it was destroyed. The house was, was washed away because it didn't have a strong foundation. And Jesus' point is pretty obvious, that our lives need to have a strong foundation. A similar parable is, is told in Mark chapter 4. It's the parable of the soils. Jesus tells the story of a farmer who was scattering some seed. Some of the seed fell along the path and, and birds came and ate it up quickly. It didn't take root at all. Other seed was sown on rocky places where it, where it grew up quickly, but, but then it, it went away quickly. And then some seed landed on good soil where, where it grew and, and it produced a crop. And Jesus doesn't often explain the meanings of the parables, but he does in this one. And in verse 16, he says, Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, they hear the word at once and receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. This parable tells us why being rooted matters. If you're not rooted in Christ, you're not going to stand for very long. The first time that a storm comes, you're going to topple over. And so the question becomes, how do we grow deep roots? Well, you have to root your life so that, number two, you can recognize the lies. 
recognize the lies. It's important for us to remember that the Colossian church is a group of young believers. They have not been Christians for a long time. They haven't been following Jesus for very long. This is a church that Paul himself did not personally plant. He has not yet personally visited this church, but he knows enough about them to know that they are new in their faith, which makes them especially susceptible and impressionable to deceptive teaching. It got me thinking about the difference between young Christians and experienced Christians. I'm not talking about younger people and older people. I'm talking about younger in the faith and newer in the faith. Generally speaking, young Christians have a passion and a zeal to life. I love being around new believers because they're so excited that they, their life has just been changed. Their life, they, they understand what it means to, to be saved. And so they, they can't wait to go and tell everyone about it. They're on fire for the Lord. I often think that, that a new believer's life could be, if their life was a movie, it would be called Fast and Furious because they just want to go, 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 go. There's nothing stopping them. Now, the downside to the passion and zeal is that oftentimes they, they lack maturity and they lack wisdom. Oftentimes they go, 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 and if they're not careful, they, they can burn out really quickly. But also because they're, they're new in their faith, and, and they're soaking everything up. If somebody is teaching them something that, that's not solid, then, then they're susceptible to believe that. Now, with, with experienced Christians, seasoned Christians, they often possess a, a deep wisdom and maturity in their faith. Experienced Christians ha have experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And so because of that, it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to throw them off. They, they know what it's like to, to follow Jesus in times of plenty and, and, and times of, the, of scarcity. They're not tossed to and fro by, by, by the latest fad or the latest trend, but, but, but there's a consistency in, in their discipleship. But the downside is, is, is oftentimes experienced Christians have a tendency to get cynical. And because they, they see a lot of things come and go, it's easy for that, that passion and that zeal to wane. And that's why a healthy church needs both new Christians and experienced Christians. We need both. We need the, the, the passion and the zeal of the younger Christians who are excited about new life in Christ to remind us of that. We need new Christians to reignite our own passion but we also need the maturity and the wisdom of experienced Christians to be able to walk aside the new believers and show them the way, to show them how to, how to weather the highs and lows that will inevitably come when it comes to following Jesus. To these new believers, Paul writes in verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human traditions and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Here, Paul's warning against dangerous teachings that could deceive Christians away from Christ. Now, we're not sure the exact nature of these teachings. A couple weeks ago, we, we identified there's some elements of Gnosticism here. There's certainly some Jewish elements. As we'll see in a moment, there, there's some legalism that, that is present here. But I think it's helpful for us to read a couple of different translations to, to get a, a bigger scope and picture of what this teaching is. Uh, the New Living Translation reads this way. 
Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message writes this, watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas through the empty traditions of human beings and the empty superstitions of spirit beings, but that's not the way of Christ. Now, if we didn't know any better, we would think that that Paul was writing in the 21st century, not the first century. Because when I read, they want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything, I immediately think of social media. I mean, does, are, are you tracking with me? Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll joke with my wife, I'll, I'll open up Facebook or Twitter, and I'll just say, well, I wonder what everybody's mad about today. What are we arguing about today? And, and there's decept- deception, it's endless arguments, and they never amount to anything. But, but the tragedy is, is that a lot of the deception that's going on in our world today has eternal consequences. And so I want to share with you some of the biggest lies that people believe today that, that draw them, that deceive them away from Christ. And I want you to see if, if you've ever encountered these or, or maybe you've even believed them yourself. How about this one? Sin isn't a big deal. Sin really isn't a big deal. I mean, our, our culture accepts it. Everybody's doing it. I mean, plus, we, we serve a God of grace and a God of forgiveness. So, yeah, maybe it's not the best thing for me to do, but, but, but God will forgive me. It'll be okay. And we lose sight of the fact that, that sin is lawlessness. Sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. How, how about this one? All that matters is that you're a good person. You just got to be a good person. As long as you live a good life, you live a moral life, as as long as the good that you do outweighs the bad that you do, then then you're okay. How about this? It really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. As long as as you truly believe what you believe, it really doesn't matter. Some people use the illustration. You know, we're all all getting to the top of the mountain, and and whichever path you take to get there is, is fine. And so some people, you know, they take the path of Buddhism and some people take the path of Islam and other people take the path of Christianity. And as long as you just sincerely believe it, you know, it's all going to kind of shake out in the end. And we forget that, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or how about this one? I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody else. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I, I don't need Jesus. I'll figure it out. I can do it on my own. I'm a self-made person. Or how about this one? That God would never accept me. There's no way God could accept me, not after everything that I've done, not after my past. It's deception after deception after deception. Satan is known as the deceiver. Scripture calls him the father of lies, that he masquerades as an angel of light, which means that his schemes sound good. It's not blatant lies, it's it's half-truths. It's a little deception here, 
a twisting of the truth here, a distortion here, a casting of a little bit of doubt. It's what he did all the way back in the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent comes to him and says, did God really say that? Did God really say just casting doubt? That's why it's important that we recognize that the truth is under assault and Satan deceives. And one of the best ways that we can recognize the lies is to, number three, remember the truth. Remember the truth. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you see there what God has done to save us? He has forgive us, he's forgave us of our sins, verse 13. He has canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. He has taken that away. He's triumphed over the authorities and the powers by the cross. What Paul is telling us is to remember. Remember who Christ is. Remember what he's done. Remember what has happened to you. And that's why understanding your own personal story is so important. You need to understand your story of what God has done in your life, how God has changed you, how God has saved you. And if you've never done this before, you need to write out your story. And not only do you need to write out your story, you need to share your story. You need to share your story with others of how God has changed your life. Because the more that you share your story, the more you remember the truth that changed your life. But you also need to remember to forget. You say, hold on, what, what are you talking about? You need to remember to forget. Forget the shame. Forget the guilt. Whatever Satan tries to remind you of, you need to forget that. Your guilt, your shame has been canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. Continue to remind yourself to forget. And that leads to number four. Resist temptation. Resist temptation. Verse 16 says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. These verses here have challenged Bible scholars. There's no consensus opinion on who these false teachers are. I think in light of the context, the most plausible explanation is that this is a group of Judaizers, which means that these are people who maintained that it's not just faith in Christ that saves you, it's faith plus good works. It's faith plus following all the rules. This is known as legalism. Now notice here that Paul does not issue a scathing rebuke to the Colossian, Christian, the Colossian Christians like he did in Galatians. 
And that tells us that the Christians in, in Colossae hadn't fallen into legalism. But Paul does recognize that this false teaching is a growing threat, and so they need to resist the temptation. In Galatians 1, Paul says, who has bewitched you? You're falling, you're, you've turned to a different gospel that's really no gospel at all. See, in Galatians, it had turned to full-blown legalism. Here, Paul is warning and saying this is a threat that needs to be resisted. Along with that, number five, we need to refuse to compromise. Refuse to compromise. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You see, one of the problems with legalism is that it's deceptive. It perpetuates the belief that the more you do, the better Christian you are. And that appears to have been a problem for the Colossians. In verse 21, Paul is quoting the religious leaders of the city who were promoting a type of religion that rewarded you when you restricted and punished yourself. And even though that sort of aesthetic behavior may seem holier, Paul did not want the Colossian church to be fooled. Refusing to be legalistic doesn't mean that you're compromising your faith. That means you're holding even stronger to your faith. And I'll tell you why that's so important. Because I've been a Christian for about 24 years now. And one of the hardest things for me to continually grasp is that salvation is by grace alone through faith. It just seems like there's got to be something I have to do. It's gotta, it seems like there's got to be something that I have to do to earn it. Because the gospel seems too good to be true. Almost every other area of my life, uh, the things that I have, have received have been things that I have earned through my effort and through my, my merit. You think back to, to when you're in school. You study hard, you apply yourself, you do good on the test, and what happens? You earn a good grade, you earn an A. And you think about in, in athletics. You practice early, you, you practice late in the day, you, 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 you constantly are, are, are improving your craft. What happens? The harder you work, the harder you try, you, you earn success, you earn victory, you earn achievements. And then you think about work. You show up early, you stay late, you work your tail off, you grind and grind and grind, and what happens? You get the promotion. You get employee of the month. You, you earn it based on your effort. And I've, if I'm being completely transparent with you, there's part of me that really likes it that way because I'm in control. And if I work hard enough and if I try hard enough, then I can, I can do it and I get the credit. I get the applause. I get the attention. But I'm telling you, the problem is that way of living just does not satisfy. It's exhausting. It's never enough. You can't keep up with all the self-imposed demands. Don't do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. It's like a hamster in the wheel and you keep on spinning and you're never satisfied. 
There's never enough to achieve to make you feel like you've accomplished it. Verse 23 in the New Living Translation says, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Church, it is only by trusting in Christ and in his power can you get the help that you so desperately need. Points two through five all come out of having a life rooted in Jesus Christ. If you ever hope to recognize the lies of Satan, remember the truth of God, resist temptation and refuse to compromise, then you must be rooted in Christ. Are you rooted in Christ? Today, we we often hear about the alarming numbers of young adults who are leaving the church. The number of millennials, the number of, of Gen Z. And my theory on that is this. A large portion of the previous generation thought that, that, if, that if I can just get my kid in enough activities, if I can just get them involved in enough events, then that will keep them on the right track. If I can just fill up their life with events and activities and conferences and camps and Bible studies, if I can just get them going to enough events, then that will keep them on the right track. And as a result, events and activities were prioritized over relationships. The truth is what you win people with is what you win them to. And when you win someone with an event, what happens when the event is over? When you win someone with a program, what happens when they're no longer in that program? But when you win someone with a relationship, it sticks. When you, when you win someone with a relationship to, to Jesus, it, it sticks with them. When, when, you, when you get them in relationship with other believers, You've heard it said before, you become who you surround yourself with. It's interesting to learn that redwood trees actually have pretty shallow roots, at least in proportion to their massive height. But do you know how redwood trees stay strong and upright? They grow their roots outward, and they intertwine with other redwood trees. I love that picture. Deep and wide. Deep and wide. Deep roots in Christ and connected with others. Deep roots, strong connections. That's how God has designed us. And every single one of us need it. But it's not going to happen on its own. You have to take the initiative. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that the truth of the gospel would be so enmeshed in our lives that we would grow deep roots. That when the storms of life come, when struggle comes, when temptation comes, God, that that we would not fall over, but that we would be strong and firm. Because we have cultivated a relationship with Jesus. God, I pray that that we would be both deep and wide. We would deep roots in Christ and we would would prioritize connection with others. God, help us to realize that we can't do this on our own. We need each other. We need the church. So God, today I want to pray for, for those here 
who, if they're being completely honest, they would say, I'm not rooted in Christ. I pray that today they would say, I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of my life so those roots can start growing deep. I want him to, to wipe away my sin. I want to accept him as the Lord and Savior of my life. I want my eternity to be changed. And God, there may be others here who are kind of living the Christian life on their own. They're not connecting with others. And I pray today would be the day that they would say, I wanna, I wanna connect with the church. I wanna grow my roots together with this church so, so that I'm not on an island by myself, but, but, but I'm in community growing together. And God, I pray that all of us would be rooted and built up, strengthened in the true faith. In Jesus' name, amen.